morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 14, verses 6 through 25. It can be found on page 6 of your bulletin if you would like to read along. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, With other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. We are finishing our study of the book of 1 Corinthians um, here and now. And we have been working through this book since January. And finally, uh, we're here at the end of 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 15, we covered on Easter Sunday. And 1 Corinthians 16, you can read on your own. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, delighted to be able to bring this to you and also to finish up this um, rich and sometimes difficult, end-to-end uh, -end challenging study of this grand book of 1 Corinthians. And so, praise God for his grace the last couple of months. Uh, so, here we are, the final sermon. Let me pray for us uh, before we dive in. Jesus, uh, we ask for you to come and help us. You know, I feel weak, and so I pray that you would be strong in my weakness, that your grace and your presence would shine through. And we pray that you would use uh, the words from this passage to speak to every heart here. You know what we need. 
Um, but most of all, help us to see Jesus. He's the one we most need. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love volcanoes. And so I've been thrilled over the last several weeks, not for the destruction and the surprises to the local residents that we've witnessed in the big island of Hawaii, but I have been absolutely thrilled to see the fantastic displays of what's really underneath our Earth's surface. Lava flowing and exploding, right? It's brought the old child out of me. I don't know if you were like this, but even as a kid, I loved volcanoes. Uh, did a couple of, not one, but a couple of class science experiments around volcanoes, building the clay mountain, filling it up with baking soda and colored water. They never really worked, but it was a lot of fun, right? And something that I've sort of been reminded of as I've been enjoying that lava cam that you can find on CNN.com, right? 24-7, just staring at this bursting flow of lava. I don't know if they still play it. But I don't know what it is with me and volcanoes and me and lava. Maybe it's my love for the dramatic. Maybe it's the unpredictable, uh, something exciting. The Corinthian church was a little bit like that, especially when it came to spiritual gifts. They had a love for the dramatic, uh, for the unpredictable, for the spiritually impressive and even showy. It's why among all the different gifts that God had given to the Corinthian community, one of the gifts that they loved most, that they prized most, that they boasted in most, was the gift of tongues. Speaking in foreign languages beyond your human ability. Uh, it was impressive, it was showy, it was dramatic. In other words, the Corinthian church had something of a love for what you might call the verbal volcano. They really like to bring it. And so here we have this passage in 1 Corinthians 14, which follows on after Paul's instructions about spiritual gifts in chapter 12 of this letter. And then after that, a lesson on love in chapter 13 of this letter. Now Paul continues with this theme in teaching the Corinthians about a different way of relating to their spiritual gifts in general and to tongues and prophecy specifically. Tongues, of course, it's not just ecstatic speech that the apostle is referring to, but that word, which simply means languages, refers to a special gift to be able to speak foreign languages, uh, languages that actually could, in that time, apparently, be understood and interpreted if you have someone that actually knew that language also in the room. It was a way in which people were moved to speak the things of God, though it wasn't understood by those in the room, but only by the person himself or herself. Prophecy, on the other hand, was a powerful way in which people could speak the things of God, uh, bring words of comfort, words of exhortation, words of truth and grace into a person's life. It's sort of like what you and I might experience in terms of speaking in a meaningful way, the perfect word at the perfect time to the perfect person. This was the gift of prophecy at work in the Corinthian church. And what the Apostle Paul is telling them throughout this passage is follow the way of love. 
That's what he says in verse 1 of this chapter. We saw that verse last week. In fact, the entire book, in a way, you might say, is a book about how to love in the way that Christ loved us on the cross. How is it that God came and related to us? Well, he gave everything up. He made sacrifices for us. Jesus was one who laid down his rights, put us first, lifted us up, put our needs before his own, even dying on a cross in order to pay for our sins and give us life. This is the theme that we find in this book, this letter to the Corinthian church again and again and again. Follow the way of love. And here's the Apostle Paul saying, even with respect to the gifts of tongues and prophecy, follow the way of love. By which he means prefer prophecy over tongues. And I'll explain a little bit of what that means and why the Apostle says that. But what we can draw from this chapter really are two lessons, two principles about corporate worship. What do we do when followers of Jesus gather together on a Sunday morning like we do? What are two principles about how worship ought to operate when love is the central theme of our gathering? Well, here's what the Apostle tells us. Two things. One, that worship must be self-sacrificial. And secondly, that worship must be understandable. Must be sacrificial and secondly, understandable. Let's take a look. First, worship must be self-sacrificial. Earlier this week, I came across this cartoon, one of these little Dilbert types of cartoons that I found online, and uh, a simple little picture where you find a woman seated in a chair in an artist's studio. And there's a painter that's looking at the woman and carefully painting a portrait. But as you look more closely at the canvas that's there in the cartoon, you notice that the painter is actually painting a picture of his own face. It's a picture of him. And the caption of the cartoon reads, a, a selfish portrait. Not, not a, not a self-portrait, but a selfish portrait. The artist painting another person and only coming up with his own image. It's a little bit of a picture of how we tend to operate in the worship setting. We say we're here for God or we say we're here for other people when really we're painting a selfish portrait in our worship context. This is just our nature. We have to admit, first of all, and I do too, that we are consumers by nature. When we step into a worship service, the first question that typically is on our minds is what's in it for me? The Apostle Paul says something really fascinating about this discussion of tongues and prophecy. He said, tongues are good, and yet you understand, because nobody else literally understands what you are saying. This is something between you and God. Do it privately at home. It's a gift, but it doesn't actually bless or edify anyone else. Prophecy is something that you ought to do when you're gathered together, because it's something that actually builds other people up. You see this, in fact, even in verse 6 at the top of our passage Paul begins, now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you 
unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction. You hear the apostles focus. It's on the good that I can be to you. We find in verse 17, he critiques the use of tongues in the communal setting where no one can understand what's being said. He says in verse 17, you are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. No one else is built up, which is what edified means. And so he goes on to say, well, therefore, you you should keep your tongues at home, rather speak prophecy. In fact, this is what he says later in the passage, not printed here. We covered these verses last week in verses 27 and 28. He said, if anyone speaks a tongue, two or at most three should speak and one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. You see, your heart might be exploding with a message. Your heart might be exploding even with gospel truth. But if no one can understand what you are sharing, then hold back. Because the call is not just to think about yourselves. Your call is to always be thinking about others. How can I build others up in the worship setting? How can I bless them? How can I bring comfort or encouragement or truth to them? Not just to me. Not just to me. As Christian author Joe McKeever put it very succinctly, we are in church to give, not to get. Not primarily. Giving, first and foremost, to God. The worship that he's due, the praise that he's due, as we hear about him and as we see him afresh in his word and in the community, as we experience God, our first job is to turn up praises unto God. What have you experienced of Christ lately that you need to give God thanks and praise for? That is our first job. But secondly, there's a horizontal dimension to our worship. We're called also to think of the human level in our worship setting. And what is it? It's not just what do I get out of it, but it's what do my brothers and sisters get out of it? How can they be served? How can they grow? How can they be built up? It's an amazing thing the way in which the apostle, by the power of the gospel, calls us to worship with a sense of self-denial. Right? Not just doing what I feel, but in fact even sometimes foregoing what I feel and what works for me best for the good of somebody else. Even exercising loving self-restraint or generosity, self-sacrificiality. It's an amazing thing that is just counter-human, counter our consumer hearts, counter our self-centered instinct where the apostle says, de-center yourself when you come into a worship service. Put attention away from yourself and towards others. And so what does that mean? When you walk into this communal setting every Sunday morning, or even when you start to think about coming in on Saturday night, perhaps, or Sunday morning, who do you most have on your mind? Are you thinking about another person? 
Are you thinking about somebody that might be suffering, going through a hard time? Are you thinking about, I, I, I really hope they show up because I think God might have a word for them, a word of comfort, a word of challenge, a word of rebuke, a word of encouragement. Are you thinking of other people or are you only thinking of yourself? Are you praying for people even as you come into the service? Have you lately thought to pray for somebody that maybe you notice or maybe even pray with them to say, hey, friend, can I sit with you and pray that God really meets you? I know you're going through something today. I have nothing new to say to you. <laughs> I'm, I've run out of words. I've run out of wisdom. But God never runs out of wisdom. So let me pray to him. Lord, bless this friend's experience of the gospel, of his word, of the sacrament, of communal life, of the singing, so that they might really encounter exactly what they need of you today? Have you prayed for other people as they come in? Have you seen yourself as a welcomer in the community, even if you're new to the church, but where your attention is devoted to others to such a degree where you realize this time is not just for my comfort, not just for my comfort, but rather it's for others to feel the welcome of Christ, not just for my welcome, but for their welcome. Do you extend yourself with hospitality, in, in making others feel built up, edified in their experience of communal life. It's one of the reasons why we encourage people. In fact, if you remember, we, we require you in love as, as, as a value of ours, require people and encourage you to join one of our Sunday teams, right? A welcome team, jumping in to pass out bulletins, but also to be a smiling face greeting people reflecting a little bit of the, the welcome of the gospel in Christ through a welcomer. Or to be someone downstairs preparing the communion elements, cutting the bread and preparing the wine and the juice, which is, of course, another way of saying, hey, here, let me serve in a way that blesses other people. Let me enhance not my worship, but another person's worship. How can I lift them up unto the throne of grace and help them to engage with God? Because you never know what, might God, what God might do in their lives today. Uh, what are ways, friends, that we can be so oriented towards one another self-sacrificially that we might even intentionally say, my job this morning is to assume upon myself all kinds of awkwardness so that others might be comfortable. I mean, we don't do that, right? Most, it's, it's funny. I think about my conversations, my social interactions with people throughout the week, how much my choices, my conversations, my decisions are oriented around the avoidance of awkwardness. Right? I mean, it's not even like avoidance of cataclysmic con conflict, or the avoidance of disaster. It's something as petty as, I just don't want to be sort of like uncomfortable. Right? Talking to a person and running out of small talk. Or that, you know, moment or two pause where it's like, I, we both know we ran out of stuff to talk about. <laughs> right? And you're just staring at each other. But see, love says, I'll do that. I'll do that for you. Uh, I'll do what I can to... to, to give you a space here, to make you a part of this family, to, to, to bring you in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal some of your awkwardness so that you might be less awkward. 
This, of course, is what Jesus did. And beyond awkwardness, beyond awkwardness, right? Crown of thorns, that's more than awkward. Nails in his hands on a cross, that's more than awkward, right? Uh, bearing the, the, the wrath of God, that's the just punishment for all of our self-centeredness, that's more than awkward. That's, well, love. The love of Christ. What he bears for us, what he bore for us in his cross and in his resurrection. Isn't this what Jesus has always done for us? Putting us first, self-sacrificially. That's more than just a model and example. That's the power that we have. When you know that Christ has done that for you, it changes your heart. It becomes a, a natural thing, a supernatural thing, an instinct by the grace of the Holy Spirit for you to think of other people and not just yourself. As Romans 15 puts it, each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself. So you come to worship. Who are you here to please? Just yourself? First and foremost, Christ, of course, but then after that, who? How about your neighbor? How about your friend? This, Paul says, is not just a good idea. It's actually part of our growth and maturity, right? We see this in verse 20. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regards to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. Kids naturally think about themselves. Maturity in the gospel, growing up in Christ, means learning to think about other people. Will you be a self-sacrificial worshiper like that? Secondly, worship must be self-sacrificial. Worship must also be understandable. Worship must be understandable. This, too, is part of what the way of love in worship looks like. In verse 18, the apostle says this, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. What's he saying? He's saying I, my goal here is to actually care for people, instruct people, tell them something that they can understand. He says this in verse 11, if then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. It does them no good, and it does me no good. The Apostle Paul in his teaching of tongues and prophecy and saying, hey, prophecy is to be preferred because it is intelligible, it is understandable, brings us to this principle of comprehensibility understandability in worship as an act of love. Our Christian communities as a whole and our worship services in particular are supposed to be understandable. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, church, understandable? That's not my normal experience. And of course, it's in that regard that the church oftentimes has become neglectful or even has often failed. Some of these principles were worked out a long, long time ago in the 16th century during the Protestant Reformation. You may or may not know that 
Back then, before the 16th century in medieval Catholicism, the entire worship service was actually conducted in Latin. So no matter what language you spoke and no matter what country you were in, the church was always, the church service and the mass was always conducted in the language of Latin. And the Bibles themselves were only translated into Latin and all the music was sung in Latin, which then meant that the songs could only be sung by the priests alone. The scriptures could be read and explained only by the priests alone, and the worship service was comprehensible to nobody but the priests alone. And so, of course, the reformers came in and said, well, that ain't right, looking at passages like this and other places in the Bible that say that worship is something that must be engaged by all people. Uh, no, no matter who you are and what your background, there needs to be something that engages you and connects with you, something that's understandable to you. And so they spoke often about the importance of expressing biblical truth in the language of ordinary people. So they used the phrasing, the importance of, of doing worship and doing the Bible in vulgar languages. Now, that doesn't mean that you're cussing all the time. Vulgar, of course, means common. That's a Latin word too, ordinary, common. We use the common language of people in order to engage people. This is an act of love, and this is a principle of the Reformation. And so what does that mean in practice? In order for this time to be actually helpful, edifying, building up, upbuilding for all of us here, well, we have to pay attention to things like how we speak. Is the preaching, and this is where I invite accountability for myself, for Pastor Yancey, for other preachers, is the preaching understandable to the people of our pews? Are words or even manners of speech used that sort of exclude certain people, that make it hard for some to understand, even if it connects well with others? Illustrations, terminology, are things sufficiently explained in order to make gospel truth understandable to the average person that walks into this room? That's a principle of love. That is what the apostle is getting at here in this passage. The principle extends to the translations of the Bible that we use. Is it one that actually uses ordinary English? Again, so that the average person in our community could also hear and understand. The prayers that are prayed, are they comprehensible? The liturgy or the different steps in our worship process, are they not just in the wording understandable, but do you feel lost or are things explained to you? This is an act of love. Is the whole service made understandable to you? A commitment that we need to have as a community to walk people through, never assuming that anyone here has a rich background in this or that kind of service, but that we are walking together as a church in the liturgy of the gospel. The same thing again with music, where music has this special way in which it can be the heart language of people, is the music sort of emotionally and cognitively understandable to people, especially when we have a room full of people of different cultural backgrounds? Do we have enough of a mix of different kinds of music 
that actually makes the song understandable to the heart. Not just one style, but a variety. What we call here cross-cultural music, where we're inviting you to step into this dance, maybe literally a dance, together of experiencing the songs of the church that connect with different people coming from different cultures through different musical cultural forms, and this too is an act of love. To use the other principle and to combine it with this one, to even step into that singing self-sacrificially, to say, hey, it's important for this music to be understandable to a range of people, and so if I'm singing a song, and maybe I don't love that song, maybe it's not really my groove, but you know what, that's not the only question I'm asking. Do I like this song? Will we learn to ask, or maybe assume, perhaps someone else is really connecting with the Lord through that song? It might not be my favorite, it might not be my preferred cultural style, but it might be someone else's, and it's my joy to give that up. It's my joy to defer to the worship needs of another person as that song has become more comprehensible to their heart, even if it's in that moment less comprehensible to mine. The apostle calls us to this kind of sacrificial approach to worship, this kind of loving commitment to the understandability of the community. And this extends not just to those who are professing Christians. The apostle is very clear that this extends also to those who are outside or new to the Christian faith. Look at verses 21 and on. This is what the apostle writes. In the law it is written with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. What is going on there? The apostle there is quoting from the Old Testament, Isaiah 28. And that's a place where the prophet is actually coming to the people and telling them, look, time and again I have spoken to you, but you refuse to listen to my word. And so as punishment, as an act of judgment, and as discipline lovingly, God allows Israel to be conquered by foreign nations, the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire after them. And the people of God are subsequently exiled from their homeland, deported to another land. So foreign languages in that context became a symbol of Israel's exile, judgment in a foreign place. Every time they heard foreign languages, it would remind them of their judgment before God. What is the apostle saying then? Especially in verse 2, this confusing sentence here, tongues then are a sign, not for believers, for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. What is he saying here? He's saying, listen, when you speak tongues, essentially a foreign language, you are leaving those who are outsiders to that language feeling like they are in spiritual exile. Or put another way, if you have a worship service that is totally not understandable to a person that walks in the doors, how have you helped them? 
have you not actually made them feel estranged, alienated, far from God, in fact, in spiritual exile? You've replicated the whole experience of Israel in exile by bringing incomprehensible worship services to the visitors in your mix. So what does the apostle say? Speak intelligibly. Speak in a way, do your service in a way that every person coming in can understand. Because what might happen, verses 23 and on. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquires and unbelievers come in, will they not say you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, speaking in an understandable language, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. And that paragraph is telling us a few things. First of all, it assumes that those who are unfamiliar with the Christian faith ought to be present in all of our Christian worship services. It's an assumption that we try to run with here at Grace Meridian Hill, uh, where we are always assuming we have a range of people uh, in their spiritual journeys, and it's what we call a spiritually diverse community, people of all kinds of religious backgrounds here in our midst, inquirers, unbelievers, seekers, however you might describe where you are at in relation to God, you are welcome here. You are expected to be here. We're not surprised by the presence of anybody. Secondly, the apostle also in this passage seems to be telling us that we ought to, in love, adapt our services so that they are helpful to inquirers and what he calls here unbelievers. This is an act of love, not just to wrap the service around the minds and the hearts of Christians, believers, but even to make adjustments in order to, yes, sacrificially include and edify visitors to the Christian faith. In order that, thirdly, they might have a genuine encounter with God, where maybe even in a surprising sort of way, uh, Paul says here, so they will fall down and worship God, and of course that's not prescriptive, as if that's something that has to happen every time, but rather it's one way that God might meet a person where they are confronted with the reality of God and confess God is really among you. Because what? You have made the service understandable to them. It's why we try to labor to explain hard Bible words. It's why we try to explain what's going on in the service. It's why we try to address different doubts that you might have. It's why we always honor and respect people in the wide range of spiritual journeys that you might be on. Because the gospel calls us to worship sacrificially, to worship with a commitment to making everything in the life of our service understandable especially for you if you're just starting to grapple with the story of Christ and his gospel. Which, of course, is the story that all of us need to grapple with. That's the calling here of this passage. What does it look like, even in our corporate gatherings, to put other people first? Not to center myself, 
but to look around to say, how can I labor to love you? How can I bless you? How can I ensure that this community time actually works well for you? Because isn't that exactly what Christ has done for us? You see, God is a God who made himself understandable to us. We never would have known him or comprehended him if he hadn't come and spoken. He hadn't come and showed up in our world. God took initiative, not leaving us to ourselves, but by becoming a human being, moving into our world, showing us what love looked like. Commissioning his apostles to write his word, the scriptures that we now have, and revealing himself in human languages. Don't you see? In every step of the way, God put your needs first. Loving you, communicating to you, and most of all, in sending his son to die for you. This is Philippians 2, a little story of what Christ has done and how that shapes our lives. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, he writes, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the love of Christ for us, putting our needs and interests before his own, even unto death. As that story becomes the story of your life, the defining narrative of your heart and identity, does that not start to give you power to love like him, to worship self-sacrificially, thinking about those around you, to worship understandably, being committed as a community, to making this service accessible to people of a range of backgrounds, Christian and non-Christians alike. This is the way of love in worship. This is the way of the cross this, in fact, if we've been paying attention together, is the way of the entire book of 1 Corinthians. As Paul has pushed again and again the story of the cross as the defining ethic of all of the Christian life. How do we love like Christ who laid down his life to love us? And so the letter closes among the final verses of chapter 16 with these words. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love, even worship. Beloved, will we worship together, get together every Sunday morning and love? Let's pray. We ask that you would give us grace to love like you, to serve like you to have a mind full of someone else, not just ourselves, not just painting self-portraits in a worship gathering in our hearts. Uh, help us to labor, to include, to welcome, to bless, to build up and edify 
We pray that you would give us the heart of Christ. We pray this, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.